This morning I want to speak just for a few minutes on the subject, stay for a while. Stay for a while. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your blessings upon our lives. Thank you for this season, all that it represents. Thank you for this congregation that's come together this morning, everybody that's watching online. We pray that your word would be a blessing, God. We do believe, we know, and we declare that when you show up, you come with purpose and with intention to minister and to speak by the power of your spirit. And so we release you to do that today, God, and we invite you to do it in us. And personally, God, we pray, I, we, I invite you to do it in me. Do your work, God. Let your will be done and your kingdom come in Jesus' name. You can be seated this morning. Somebody say amen. Amen. It is the Christmas season. If you were out at all this past weekend, you notice the traffic is picking up. You notice the malls are a little, more, little bit more crazy. And uh, even Costco for a Saturday, it was pretty intense. They, uh, they ha- I noticed they had an extra little table set up by the phone, you know, carrier set up booth. And I mean, people just know it's, it's the most craziest time of the year. And so with this, we, we understand it means, among other things, seemingly endless Christmas parties, which last night was, was wonderful. And, uh, and I already thought that uh, Eric did host a game show. I thought he was on The Price is Right, but... But with, with the parties and the holiday gatherings with you and yours, you know, this joyous time, it can be a busy time. And, and I don't know about you, but some years you feel like you need a break after Christmas break because of all the festivities and all of the family get-togethers and everybody wants to see everybody and, you know, all that. Throughout this season, there, there may come the opportunity slash maybe you consider it the obligation for you to host a Christmas gathering, and with that comes the potential that you will have that type of guest there, you know, the one that evidently has nowhere pressing to be after your party. They seemingly have no problem wearing a hole right through their welcome, and they, and there you will be, stuck. Has anybody ever been stuck before by one of them? But I've come with some helpful hints as to how you can kindly yet bluntly rid your house of those welcome wearer outers. You might want to get your notepad out. Number one, make the end time of your party evident up front. Nothing like a giant sign that spells out when it is time to leave. You can get creative and decorative and... You can write the party end time on a big chalkboard or even hang decorative letters that say party is over at 9 p.m. If this doesn't work, I don't know what to tell you. Hopefully your guests will read it and and take note. This one might be helpful for you. Uh, Just start cleaning. Nothing makes people want to bounce like the whir of a vacuum cleaner bumping up against their chair. And while you're at it, just throw the guest a rag and a bottle of cleaner because I can guarantee nobody wants to stick around if they have to clean too. How about this one? Stage a fake phone call. Apply the maneuver many like to use for a bad date and act like you've received a call containing either bad news or an emergency. 
tell guests you must leave immediately to attend to the issue and start grabbing your keys to leave. If, if you're able to, uh, you know, cause some tears to well up and maybe allow one to stream down your cheek, it will add to the dramatic effect. Don't forget to look extremely frazzled or frantic. And even if you want to go to the next level, drive down the street and just sit there and wait to watch everybody pass by. This one's great. Try to sell your guests something. If you sell Plexus, just pull out Plexus and your house will clear out. Offer them something like, or sorry, wind down the night by asking guests, would you like to buy one of little Susie's Christmas wreaths? They're only $50 and they su support her school band. Stand back and watch the mass exodus. If it's a pyramid scheme, even better. For extra points, use the pyramid scheme line. Number five, offer them one last thing, and you have to make sure to include the words before they leave. Right? Offer them something like a cup of tea before they leave. Hey, can I, can I get you a cup of tea before you leave? And oftentimes, people will decline. They will get the hint, and they will start heading for the door. And if they accept the offer, simply say, oh, I'm sorry, we're out of tea. And finally, this is not an exhaustive list, but hopefully this is helpful. Just fall asleep. <laughs> you could either simply fall asleep on the couch, or if you're really committed, go put on your pajamas. <laughs> Turn off every light in the house and go into your bedroom. No one is going to want to party in the dark. Now, these may be okay for Christmas parties, but, you know, I'm, I'm really, I really don't think that many would have the, 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 that issue too predominantly. But, uh, and I know that we love to hang out. And in fact, today, what I want to talk to you about a little bit is not, is not this. I want to talk to you about, about lingering, not, not leaving. I want to flip the narrative, and I want to talk about a mindset that every believer must have. And if we are going to fulfill Jesus' command to make disciples, it must be accompanied by a stick to if I can use that word. We must have a willing, willingness to linger and to love on people. Consider with me uh, today the contrast between the stork and the penguin. <laughs> I told you it's getting wild here at church. How many have ever been asked the question, you know, where do babies come from? All the parents in the room, maybe. Perhaps your, your parents at one point in your life told you about how the storks are responsible for delivering babies to families, and I just wanted to let you know they lied. <laughs> this is a myth, and, and likely it originated because parents didn't want to have that slightly awkward conversation about, you know, where babies come from and all that. Uh, essentially, the stork, as the myth would go, they pick up the baby in a huge diaper. They fly the baby to the right address. They ring the doorbell with its beak. And then they fly away. The parents simply have to uh, open the door and take the baby in. And beyond this, the stork has no responsibility in the development and nurturing of the young infant. They did their job, and it is up to somebody else, in this case, the parents, to raise and train the child. And sometimes, if I could suggest and submit to you this morning, 
Sometimes we can observe the soul-saving efforts of individuals or perhaps church congregations, and, and, and we can see that sometimes it looks a lot like the actions of the stork. Churches and individuals, they, they bring lost people to the point of being born. We would say born again, right? And then they leave the responsibility of growth and nurturing to somebody else. doesn't really matter who, just somebody. And in many cases, to no one at all. Too many times we have no plan to make disciples, assuming that when people get saved, God flips some sort of autopilot switch inside of them and they become saints all by themselves. But I've come to say this morning, we are not called to be storks. We are, we are not supposed to have a one and done mentality when it comes to reaching the lost around us. But rather, we're called to be more like, like penguins. Touch your neighbor and say, you're supposed to be a penguin. You getting it yet? Emperor penguins breed during the cold Antarctic winter, and they lay their eggs in May. And once the female lays her egg, she passes it off to the male for him to watch and keep warm while she goes hunting for food. She goes to the grocery store, you know. The male huddles with other males to keep warm for 64 days until the female returns with food for the soon-to-be hatchling. During this time, while the egg incubates, all the males fast. See, even with penguins, there's fasting involved, you know. They're just spiritual and stuff. Anyway. At the end of this lengthy period, the females return with full bellies, typically around the time the eggs hatch, and they take over at this point, caring for the newborn penguins, regurgitating the food that they caught while the males travel to the ocean for their first meal in more than 100 days. For the next 50 days, the parents switch back and forth. One hunts while the other stays to feed the chick. One sleeps while the other gets up with the baby kind of thing, you know? And when the chick is about two months old, it starts spending more time away from its parents, though it still depends on them for food. Eventually, over the next several months, the chick becomes less and less dependent on their parents as they grow bigger and stronger. And it goes without saying this morning that this, unlike the stork, is a labor and time-intensive process. These penguins give their young their all, and they stick with them until they learn how to stand on their own two feet. They don't take anything for granted, and they make huge personal sacrifices to ensure the success of their chick. And I would say this morning that between the two models, the stork and the penguin, this is the model that Jesus would have us to adopt in our efforts to see this lost world saved. We are called to be penguins, not storks. God would have us stay for a while. In Christianity, there are two contrasting philosophies for reaching this world. They're soul winning, and there's disciple-making. And, and some of what I'm saying this morning, it's inspired by a great book by a friend of ours, Reverend Stan Gleason. His book is Follow to Lead. It's a great one. You should read it. But, but soul winning is the model that many employ. It's what kind of like we use in our Christian vernacular. But Jesus never said to win souls. He said to make disciples. Soul winning is the stork method. Disciple-making is the penguin method. Soul winning is like a microwave, right? Disciple making, that's a crock pot. Low and slow, you know what I'm saying? 
Soul winning is one and done. Disciple making is a long-term commitment. And it's even in the vernacular. When you say, I've won something, what does that communicate? It communicates that the game is over. I've won. However, once someone comes to God and gets saved, it's not over. It's just the beginning. Some people treat salvation like a diploma, and certainly we, we celebrate with people when they repent or when they get baptized. We will honor that and commemorate that moment with a certificate. But, but salvation is not like receiving a diploma. Salvation is a birth certificate. It is just the beginning. Consider the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, but he unfortunately at one point dies, and, and Lazarus' sisters, they reached out to Jesus, who then came and raised Lazarus from the dead. John 11, verse 43, and when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. And at this moment, you know, the moment when somebody bends their knee in repentance or, or goes down in the watery grave of baptism in Jesus' name to have every sin washed away or, or that moment when they're filled with the Spirit of God, that's the moment that we celebrate. When they come out of their spiritual grave and, and they're once again alive and regenerated by the power of God and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Praise God, he's alive. Let's have a party, right? You understand? But Lazarus, the Bible says... He was bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, those gathered to observe, those gathered around, his loved ones and his friends, he said to them, not to Lazarus and not to himself, loose Lazarus and let him go. It was Jesus that brought Lazarus to life. But when Lazarus came out of the grave, he was still bound by his grave clothes, alive but bound. And can I say today that that's what it is and how it is for every new babe in Christ when they come into the church, certainly and especially if they've lived a life under the dominion of sin, they become alive in Christ, but many times they are still bound by things in the form of grave clothes. And it's as if Jesus turned to the people and he said, I've done my part. Now I want you to do yours. Loose him from his grave clothes and let him go. Even after this miraculous moment of regeneration and new birth, just like Lazarus, people that obey Acts 2.38 are still bound by addictions and lack of understanding of the word of God, old habits and former lifestyles. And it is up to believers and the church to come alongside them, continue working with people even after they are saved in order to loose them from their grave clothes. I've come to say, you know, we trust Jesus to bring increase as we sow seed and water seed, and he certainly does. Only Jesus can save people. Only Jesus can bring people out of the grave of sin. But it takes the church to come alongside a new babe in Christ, a, a new believer in the church, to loose them from their grave clothes and to teach them the way more perfectly according to the word of God. That's soul winning versus disciple making. Soul winning is complete when Lazarus comes out of the grave. Disciple making is the process of removing the grave clothes. Jesus is not interested in souls being one. 
Jesus desires for disciples to be made. Because if the crowd would have left Lazarus' grave that day, in great jubilation, without removing the grave clothes, you know what would have happened is Lazarus would have been stuck there in his grave clothes, and he would have maybe hobbled around a little bit. Hello? Hello? That was my best Lazarus impersonation. And Lazarus would have died again because he's stuck. And unfortunately, many times that, that has happened throughout the course of church history, no doubt, how people, they've come in, but, but nobody came alongside. Disciple-making is a commitment. It is something that never really ends. It stretches from spiritual cradle to the grave. And all you parents in the room, you already know this because especially if you've raised kids and they're on their own and now maybe they are parents themselves, uh, I understand that, that with my children, even though they get more and more self-reliant, when the day comes, Lord willing, that they start families of their own and they move out, I will still be their father and I will be somewhat uh, significantly even involved in their lives. It never ends even when they stand on their own two feet. And I would say it is the same with spiritual children. It should never end. It shouldn't be this idea that we can just see them be born and then be done. Let me draw your attention to our text for, for a few moments here again. Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19, this is the Great Commission. It's the one that, it's as recorded by, by Matthew, but you can find it in, in other Gospels as well. But Matthew records it this way. Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Just leave that verse there for a sec. First word in the Great Commission is go. So we say Go. Because the Great Commission is not passive, the Great Commission is active. It involves a going. And for some, yes, this will mean packing up and moving away from home and what's comfortable as a missionary to go around the world and proclaim and preach the gospel. But that's not how it is for everybody, yet everybody should employ a go. Maybe for some, it's, it's going into a community that does not have a church and digging out a work. Perhaps for somebody, it is walking across the aisle to the next cubicle and saying, hey, let's grab coffee. Maybe for some, it's walking across the hall on your campus at your high school or college and saying, hey, you know, just want to let you know that I've noticed you and, and I just want to see if you want to get lunch sometime. Not a pressure pitch. It's like, hey, do you want to go to heaven or hell? No, 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 no. No, just, just say, hey, you want to grab lunch? Is that okay? Go. Next word, ye, because it's not enough to be part of a congregation that employs the go or a fellowship that employs the go. It must be personal. Jesus dispelled with the notion immediately in the Great Commission that it can just be something that somebody else does, that I pay something toward for them to do it. Jesus said, you've got to make it personal. Go ye. But then he says, teach. So we say, teach. And as I've already said, this is the Greek word methetuo, and it, and it means in other parts of the Bible, disciple. So literally what Jesus is saying, go make disciples. He said, go make disciples of all nations because this is not just for one type of person, but it's for every nationality and every race, every creed, every language group. This will work for anybody of any age, stage, or stripe of life. That's what the gospel can do. It's powerful. 
Amen? Go make disciples of all nations and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How many know what that name is this morning? It's the name of Jesus. Okay, so in verse 19, essentially what Jesus is saying is go make disciples through baptism, but not just baptism. We, we understand from the context of other places where this is recorded that Jesus is making a reference to the new birth message, the Acts 2.38 message. The most succinct and complete place where this is recorded is Luke chapter 24, where, where Jesus, he, he addresses his disciples and, and he tells them that repentance and remission of sins, that's repentance and baptism, should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be, until ye be endued with power from on high. So let me say the Holy Ghost. Right? So there we see in that recording, in Luke, we see repentance, we see baptism by remission of sins. We see the, the promise of the Father being endued with power from on high. That's the Holy Ghost. We see Acts 2.38, repent, repentance, baptism, and Holy Ghost infilling. And so if I could just infer into Matthew 28.19, which I think is safe to do, Jesus is saying, go, you go, make disciples through the new birth message. Is that fair? And this is the Great Commission. Can we agree? But it is not the complete Great Commission. That's only a part of the Great Commission because he carries on. You notice there's a colon at the end of verse 19. And he goes on to say this in verse 20. He said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now that word teaching, it's a different word in the Greek that is didasco, and that means what you think it would mean. It means to instruct. It means to teach. And my friends, this in culmination and completion, Matthew 28, 19 and verse 20 is the purpose of the church. It doesn't end in verse 19. It doesn't end at new birth. It must go beyond conversion, and we must be a church that fulfills verse 20 and fulfills the instructions to instruct people in a biblical lifestyle, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you to do. I submit this morning that we must be a Matthew 28 and 20 church as well as a Matthew 28, 19 church. I'm thankful that we are committed to sound doctrine, certainly in the realm of our salvation message. I'm thankful that we believe in repentance. I'm thankful that we believe in water baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus because there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You can't be saved if you're baptized in titles. You can't be saved unless you're baptized with the name of Jesus being invoked over that ceremony of baptism. I'm thankful that we believe that, that when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, you will speak in tongues like the apostles did in the upper room and how they did time and time again through the book of Acts. Scripture is clear, and I'm grateful that we believe in the new birth plan. But we must be a Matthew 28 and 20 church because the gospel and the Great Commission, it culminates with the lifelong commitment to teach people that are born again. The gospel came to me and it came to you on its way to somebody else. 
And Lord, help me to not let it end with me. Don't let me be the end of that sequence that it passed from one life to the next life to the next life to me, and then it stops. Paul was a great apostle who had a great understanding of God's word, but Paul wasn't satisfied to have it all to himself. He had many people who he was investing in and training in the faith. He was didasco. He was a teacher. He wasn't just a big conference preacher. He was a teacher, one-on-one, personally. And this is evidenced in the Bible by various New Testament letters written to young men who he was mentoring, letters like First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. These were guys that he was mentoring, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says something to one of these young protégés, Timothy. He said this, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. Timothy, you've heard me teach you, right? You, you've, you've allowed me the honor to instill something in you, and I thank you for that. But I don't want you to allow it to stop in your life. He said, The same commit thou to faithful men. But Timothy, it's not enough that you just share it with somebody else. You've got to make sure to do what I'm doing right now. You've got to make sure that they're set up to succeed and pass it to somebody else again. He said, the same commit thou to faithful men who then shall be able to teach others also. In this one verse, you've got four levels and iterations of people that have received and passed on the gospel message. It's a downward flow of information that creates an upward flow of leadership and passion. It's always got to be passing on. God, don't let it end with me. There's this pattern in business, and sometimes we'll talk about it here at the church. You know, if, if, if you are a leader of any kind, the goal is to work yourself out of a job. The goal is to replicate your skill set in somebody else. And so here's the pattern. I do it. Then I do it. You watch. And then we flip it, and you you take a step out a little bit. You do it, I watch. And many people end with step four. You just go ahead and do it, and I'm free to do something else. But that's not where it stops. A true leader will empower the one that they've just empowered to then empower somebody else. The true final step is step five. You do it, somebody else watches. And we must have that mentality as we seek to impact our world. What I've committed to you, you commit to somebody else, and make sure that they commit it to somebody else. Christianity should not be about consumerism. Christianity should be us taking what we receive and passing it on to somebody else. The gospel came to me on its way to somebody else. Lord, don't let it stop and die with me. God, don't let it grow stagnant and staunch with me. God, let me let it flow into the life of somebody. I know I've shared this before, but briefly let me bring to your remembrance The Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. These are two seas in the Middle East, and you can read about them in Scripture, but but if I can just remind you, notice that both seas, they are fed by the same source, the Jordan River. And even though they are fed by the same source, in the Bible you can read about how many people fished the Sea of Galilee. They would cast their nets in, and it was vibrant, quite a vibrant fishing community, and there was much commerce taking place because of the life that was there. It was vibrant. There was vegetation and fish. And, but the, the sea further down the track, the Dead Sea, fed by the same source, got its name because of its harsh salinity content. 
It kept on receiving the water from the Jordan River, but it doesn't have any outflow. And because there was no outflow, it grew stagnant and it staunched and it was dead. Isn't it funny and, and sad, perhaps, that, that people can be fed by the same source and, and the same spirit can reside in their lives and, and, and the same messages and sermons, they can sit and they can listen, they can hear, but some people are vibrant and full of life and they're, and they're excited and passionate and yet others, they're just, they're just dead. I'll tell you the difference. One has outflow, one doesn't. We are not intended to just be consumers of the blessings of God and the word of God. The gospel came to me on its way to somebody else. It's why the apostle Paul, likely he's the one that wrote the book of Hebrews. In, verse, in chapter 5, verse 12, he said, You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Didasco, you ought to be instructing others. You see, we measure the 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 depth of a believer sometimes by their attendance record. Faithfulness is important. We measure believers by their giving record, perhaps. Faithfulness and good stewardship is important. There's all kinds of ways that people can measure other believers. But that's not how Paul said he measures the maturity level of believers. He said, here's how you can know if you're a mature believer. You're teaching others. He said, but, but you're not. I've observed and I see that you're not engaged in this process of outflow into the life of somebody else. And because of it, he said, instead, you need somebody to teach you again the basic things about God's word. People have to keep coming back around and teaching the same old principles again and again and again. And you forget and you're reminded and you forget and you're reminded. And it's all because you're not actively engaged in pouring into the life of somebody else. You see, I, I've realized in my life, the thing that keeps me the sharpest, the, the, the thing that, that keeps my mind uh, just, just astute in the word of God, it's when I have to explain what I believe to somebody else. You, know, you see, the truth of the matter is you don't really know if you uh, know what you believe until you can explain it succinctly and clearly to somebody else. If I can't explain it to somebody else, the question is, do I really even know it? And if I don't really know it, do I really even believe it? Paul said the thing that will keep you sharp, the thing that will keep you going, and the thing that will make you mature in the church of God is that you're instructing and teaching other people. Amen. The best way to make sure that we remain on fire for God is by continuing to lead others to the fire of God. So we say stay a while. Stay a while. The process of disciple-making is not one that can be completed in just a short period of time, at least rarely. And we must be committed to just slow down a bit and stay for a while. Jesus was the ultimate example of a disciple-maker. Jesus spent time investing in the lives of 12 men in particular. It always takes time. Jesus prayed with them. He ate meals with them. He shared insight when it was just he and them alone. Jesus made such margin and time in his life for those he was discipling. In 21st century Christianity, it can become easy 
to become uh, enamored with, with the crowd. And we love seeing a bunch of people gathered together and we, and we love it when attendance is up and we love it when people are supporting. All oh, that's wonderful. I'm not, I'm not negating or downplaying any of those things. They're, they're wonderful. And granted, Jesus also interacted with big crowds. And so I believe it is the will of God that the apostolic church is the biggest church in town. I believe that with every fiber of my being. Does anybody else believe that too? Okay, just checking. Jesus interacted with the big crowds, but what if Jesus only ever ministered to the multitudes and never took time to invest in the 12 that followed him? I can, I can suggest today that one thing is near certain. We would not be where we are today. And I would say that there wouldn't be a church, at least as it is, because Paul said in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation, not just of Jesus Christ, but on the apostles and the prophets. You see, it took those 12 men that Jesus did life with to found this glorious church. And that's why Jesus made sure to spend time with them, investing in those men. If he would have neglected them and only interacted with the crowds or only interacted with them while they were all in the crowd, maybe they would have not felt the burden to perpetuate his message and found his church with the help of his spirit. You see, Jesus was a disciple maker. Jesus made this statement, John 17, he was praying. He said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except Judas, the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus said, my retention rate is 100%, except for Judas, but that was, that was prophesied. I couldn't help that. Why was Jesus' retention rate so high? Because Jesus employed the penguin method. Jesus was a crockpot. Put that on Twitter. He lost none because he stayed with them. He lived his life intentionally and he invested into, into his disciples. He allowed for there to be a transfer from his life to their life, an impartation, if you will. And that doesn't happen immediately. That didn't happen just because they came to a service he invited them to. That happened because Jesus was a disciple maker. All through the New Testament, and I will conclude here shortly, we read how not just Jesus, but the apostles, they, they, they knew what it was to, to stay for a while. I read about Peter in Acts chapter 9. And the story, as the story goes in Scripture, in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, and Tabitha dies. And so Peter, he goes, and, and God uses him to bring that child back to life. Acts 9.42, and, and it was known throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Now this is the moment I would submit that maybe some would leave. It would have been easy for Peter to celebrate the miracle. And it would have been easy for Peter to look at all the believers that, that came about as a result of the miracle and then head back home. That would feel like a win. Great miracle, someone raised from the dead, many believers, it's time to go home. But he didn't. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa. You see, the presence of believers after a great miracle, it wasn't Peter's cue to leave. It was his cue to linger. 
And when we see believers come into the church, it's not our cue to leave. It's our cue to linger. It's our cue to, to step in a little bit. And it's our cue to come alongside and put our arm around them, figuratively speaking, if nothing else, and, and say, hey, I'm with you. I believe in you. Let's, let's get together sometime. Let's have a coffee. Let's talk about what just happened. It, this is awesome. I want to I be a part of this experience in your life. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. That, that's the cue to, to step in and linger. We can read in Acts chapter 10 the story of Cornelius and his household, and I won't take the time to get into it, but you can notice at the end of that story in verse 48, they've received the Holy Ghost, and they knew it because they were speaking in tongues. But, but at the end of that story, he commands them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then those in the house, they, they, they prayed, they, Peter and his friends, to tarry certain days. You see, new believers weren't Peter's cue to leave. It was his cue to linger. And we have no reason to believe that he didn't. We can read about Paul, the apostle, in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And Acts 18, 7, it says this, And he departed thence, entered into the, a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house. we got a believer. So we say, we got a believer. And many of the Corinthians hearing, they believed and they were baptized. We've got, we've got believers, we've got people being baptized. This is powerful. And then spake the Lord to Paul in, a, in the night by a vision, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with you, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And Paul, when he noticed and observed the new believers and all the baptisms and the faith and the excitement, Verse 11 says, and he continued a year and six months. See, disciple-making is the crockpot, low and slow. The new believers, the baptisms, they were not Paul's cue to leave. They were his cue to linger. The next chapter, Acts 19, verse 8, and he went into the synagogue. This is Paul again. He's in Ephesus now. The Bible says he spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were hardened, there's a bunch of people against him, and they didn't believe, but they spake evil of that way before the multitude. He departed from them, and he separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Now, history would tell us that the school of one Tyrannus, it's like a college campus. And similar to how on UNB you would have professors and lectures and all that stuff going on during the day. And then in the evening, those rooms are available. And we've done this before. You can rent those sorts of rooms and you can have your own meetings there. And history would suggest that that is what Paul was doing when he went to the school of Tyrannus. He would have used the spaces used for, for uh, intellectual teaching and learning and whatever. He would use those same spaces in the evenings in order to teach the word of God to these people. But notice in verse 10, and this continued by the space of two years. Stay for a while, you know? Linger for a while. But here's what's powerful. Paul lingered. And then the Bible says, so, they, so that all they which dwelt in Asia, they heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. You see, Paul did campus ministry for two whole years. And after two years, the Bible says, because he stayed a while, because he lingered there, everybody in Asia, that's a big place, 
But everybody in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, and it's because Paul was not content to be the big conference preacher and come into town one day and then leave three days later. But Paul said, hey, there's people here. There's those in this city that are hungry for the word of God. There's people on this campus, if you will, that need the word of God and need the spirit of God at work in their lives. And he lingered. He stayed. Music, if you'd come back and join me. I'm almost finished. That's the power, church family, of staying. That's the power of not just being contented and satisfied to just see people stay at that entry level, to see new believers just stay on the ground floor of faith, but do life with them. Show them the love of Christ. Teach them. And and hear me this morning, you don't have to be a theologian to teach somebody about God. Our lives are epistles, read of all men, Paul said. Just your very life. For some, it will be enough of the word for them to respond and grow in God. So so for those that maybe you you started to even tune me out, well, you know, I've I've never gone to Bible college or seminary. You know, I've never read a commentary. I've never read the Unger's Bible Dictionary. That's okay. Just take a deep breath. It's fine. Just your presence is powerful. Just your presence is powerful. Loving on people. Just your time is powerful. One more passage. In Acts chapter 11, we read of a great revival taking place in Antioch. After the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7... Maybe you recall the disciples, they're scattered and, and everywhere that they went, they began to preach about Jesus. And one of those places that they were scattered to and that they began to preach in was Antioch. And as they preached, a great revival broke out among the Gentiles. And so the church in Jerusalem, which was more established, there was more going on there, there was more funding, more people. They got wind of this and they sent Barnabas to report on what God was doing in Antioch. When Barnabas arrived, however, he sees the need. He sees all the new believers. He he sees all the new babies in Christ, if you will. People that have just come into the church, people that have just newly repented of their sins, people that have just, just, just newly come out of the waters of baptism filled with the Spirit of God. And he feels a burden and he decides to stay. Decides to stay for a little while. In fact, Barnabas even went to Tarsus to find Paul and got him to come back to Antioch too to help with the new converts. And Acts chapter 11 verse 26 says this, And when he had found Paul, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and they taught much people. They didasco, they instructed much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Antioch was bursting at the seams with new believers. And the scripture says that Barnabas and Paul, among others, spent an entire year working with them. They didn't move on to somewhere else, but they stayed put and they taught much people. This is the spirit and the heart of a disciple maker. And that's what Paul was. And that's what many of the apostles in the New Testament were. 
We love to talk about Paul's missionary journeys, but we must remember that Paul was not just the, you know, the traveling preacher. And there's nothing wrong with traveling preachers. But, but that's not what Paul's primary calling was. That's not what Paul's primary passion was. Paul's primary passion was investing, pouring into people, even, just one, just, just whoever, just somebody that's hungry and, and yearning and longing. I, I, I'm there. I'm, I'm for you. He was so committed to seeing churches grow that he didn't just like st- you know, start it and then leave and never think about them again. He would write letters, sometimes multiple letters, back to them just to make sure that they were still going and growing. It's the spirit of a disciple maker. Later, Paul would write this, Galatians 4.19, My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. In the New Living, it says it this way, Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And those labor pains will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. That was Paul's burden. It was the heart he had, the heart of a disciple maker. That he reached people with the gospel, yes. But not that he would just do that and then, and then move on and pass on. But the burden he felt, it didn't lift until Christ was fully developed in the people that he had reached. And then they could stand on their own two feet spiritually. That's a disciple maker. And I suggest today, and I would, I would submit to this great congregation and church family, that everybody ought to pursue this notion and and concept and everybody into the sound of my voice can do something to take another step and to make a shift in some even small way to be a disciple maker not just a stork not you know just the one and done not just put my money in the plate to make sure that somebody else can can help somebody but but I can do something personally why would Jesus want it this way just one last question to ponder why would Jesus want us to go so slow Jesus, didn't you know in the 21st century it's a fast-paced life? And I mean, you want us to spend ample amounts of time working with maybe even just, just one person and going lesson by lesson or chapter by chapter through a, something that this person is interested in learning about your word. Is that really how Jesus would want it? Why would Jesus ask us to employ a method so time-consuming Having big crusades and promoting big events and seeing big numbers seems like the way to go, right? Consider this. If somebody won one soul per day for 30 years, I couldn't do that. Maybe, maybe you've got that kind of charismatic personality. But, but even if, let's just say, for 30 years, one a day, you would have won 10,950 souls. And if that was you, man, we would celebrate you we would invite you to preach all the conferences. You'd be famous. I promise. 10,950 souls in 30 years, and you'd never have to worry about, you know, working another day for a paycheck in your life. You'd, you'd be at every conference speaking. It would be, it'd be incredible, right? The question, though, is how many people that you reached and saw respond to the gospel, how many were retained? They likely didn't make too many disciples, out of the 10,950, because after day one, you got to move immediately on to, 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 from soul number one, to, uh, soul number one to, to soul number two. So let's contrast that with this crockpot, penguin, disciple-making model. In contrast, let's say we have a disciple-maker 
that instead of reaching one soul per day, instead you take a full year to invest in just one. And then after year one, hopefully, that person is, is spiritually inclined enough that, and pa- spiritually passionate enough that, that they are at a similar place as you and they're ready to teach somebody. And so after year one, you've got two disciples. And, and then after year two, you've got four disciples and, and we're doubling year by year. It seems slow. But after 30 years, you don't have just shy of 11,000 souls. You have over a billion souls. That's one with nine zeros for those keeping score. And that is why Jesus said, go make disciples. If I win a soul, I have not necessarily made a disciple. But if I make a disciple, I have certainly won a soul. I ask you this morning as you stand, who is that one person that even maybe as I was speaking this morning that God has placed on your mind? Maybe God is wanting you to love on them a little bit. Reach to them this week. Call them up. Ask them how things are going. Set up an appointment for lunch. It's not complicated. Everybody here before too long, I, I, would, I would submit, we need to be able to point to at least one person that's our disciple. Is that all right today? That's the Great Commission. It's not just getting excited when there's a baptism or somebody is filled with the Holy Ghost, and we're going to continue that because there's nothing like that. All, all heaven is peeking over the balcony of heaven when just one sinner repents, and so we're going to join with heaven. But we must never forget that's not the culmination of the Great Commission. We've got to be a Matthew 28 and 20 church and disciple. If just 10% of this church, let's say 40 people, got a hold of this today, in a year, we could have 40 new disciples. In five years, if just, if just 10% of this church got a hold of this, in five years, 1,280 disciples. Five more years, 40,960 disciples. I know it's just simple math, but the principle is what's powerful. And that's why God said, go make disciples. And don't be afraid to linger and stay. Or if you can just make your way out of your seats this morning. We're just going to come around this front. And we're going to begin to pray. And I'm asking all the church family to come because I want to make an appeal to somebody this morning. Maybe you're here today and this is your first time in the house of God. And it's the will of God that everybody comes to a place where they know that their eternal destination is secure. So just hear me for a moment as our church family is coming. And I'm going to make a specific appeal to everybody else in just a moment. But it's as easy as one, two, three. There's a question asked in the New Testament in Acts 2.37. People were convicted and they, they weren't sure if they were ready to see Jesus. They weren't sure if they were ready and, and if they were saved. And so they asked, what must we do? And Peter responded with what Jesus told them to say. Acts 2.38, then Peter said unto them, you've got to repent. And you've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there's an experience that is available to anybody here this morning. If you're not sure, if you're ready, if you're not sure where you're going to spend eternity, it is incumbent upon me to 
tell you and to invite you at least this one time. I'm giving you an opportunity and God is giving you an opportunity to turn your life around, not just for today, not just for the next week, but for the entire rest of your life and for your eternity. Today can be a brand new day, a brand new chapter, and a blank page as God forgives you of your sin, washes every sin away, fills you with his spirit to give you the power and the authority to live above reproach and above this world and above sin. That power is available. Church family, if you begin to lift your hands and begin to pray, come on, God's talking to us too. God has somebody for us to impact. God has somebody that for us to to love on and to reach to and to invest in and to linger and to impact. But as we are praying around this front, to everybody else in the room, if, if you are here this morning and you've never taken the opportunity to repent of your sins, to turn your life around and give it to God completely, God, not my will, but your will. Repentance is a change of heart and a change of attitude that leads to a change of action. God, I'm taking a step towards you. I'm not gonna be perfect, but I'm making a decision today. I invite you to take a a physical step, to symbolize that spiritual step. And I invite you to come around this altar and come see me, come see one of our leadership. We wanna pray with you today. I believe God is doing a work right now. Let's lift our hands, let's lift our voices. All across this sanctuary, Let's let God continue to minister and speak right now. Come on, somebody just make yourself available to the Lord today. Oh God, I'm available to you. My calendar is available to you. My schedule is available to you. I want to be a part of what you're doing in this last day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.